0: you're listening to the autism weekly podcast each week we share community voices and bring light to stories that increase awareness acceptance equity access and inclusion if you haven't already subscribe to join the autism weekly family i'm your host jeff skibitzky in this episode we're thrilled to welcome back dr robbie El fatl founder and ceo at maraca learning and a renowned expert in the field of autism therapy Today, we'll be discussing a highly important and timely topic, and that's private equity and its impact on the autism community. As our guest will explain, private equity firms have been investing heavily in autism therapy providers in recent years, going back almost 10 to 15 years that this trend has started, and it's significant in its implications for people with autism, their families, and the broader healthcare industry. Robbie, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, I'm excited to hang out with you, Jeff. It's always a delight to spend time with you. Well, this is this is a topic that's, uh, I would imagine, dear to both of us because we both started organizations where founders had grown organizations and both at some point had financed. And whether that's through private equity or venture capital or a, a lot of a lot of groups use debt to be able to do some of these things. Is that it's kind of the nature of the field is that as you're growing a business eventually you need resources um but let's let let me hear just from your perspective just broadly speaking why is this an important topic right now like what's happening out in the industry in the conversations that you're hearing
1: yeah, that's a that's a great question, Jeff. You know, you and I have both been in these positions where we've built companies and we've built companies while we're raising families. And uh, when you're doing this, when you're doing this on your own, right? It's it's difficult. There's no denying the the amount of uh, capital that's required to really build a quality organization. And so, you know. Founders like us can only take a company so far uh, and to a certain point before you start to really feel that pressure of, uh, you know, of, of the dollar, right? Like you at the end of the day, you have to pay your staff and you have to you have to keep things moving in the right direction. And so I think it's an important issue because. There's, you know, we we know that the trend had had started a number of years ago. It really it really, I would say, intensified at a particular point, Uh, you know, 2016, 2017, 2018, where you saw a huge increase in the number of transactions. And so it's something that's affecting all of us. And now we're, you know, we're looking at the situation that we've got and uh, we're trying to make sense of it. Right. We know that it's had an impact. You and I have talked about this idea that if we view capital or financial resources as mostly neutral, um, sort of like a stoic way of thinking of thinking through money. It's like it's 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 capital. It's necessary. It's needed. Uh, Let's view it as neutral. It's really what the organization then does with it that makes it that gives it its value. Right. So I think it's an important issue because it's affecting a number of us. It's affecting our community, our colleagues. Uh, those who are working in settings that are uh, you know every every organization has a has a, a capital partner, so to speak, whether it's somebody like you and I who started the thing and sold homes and took all of our savings and and, and invested in the company or whether it's a private equity firm in New York or Chicago or LA or wherever they are. Um, there's there's you, you need financial resources to build
0: companies like this. And that's that's maybe where I'd like to start. And maybe I'll share a little bit of of my personal story on this, because I think that it's important for everyone to kind of see is that, you know, the the path of utilizing resources and finding funding and finding partners going forward is so different for a Mm -hmm. lot of organizations. And there's there's times where it works. There's times where it does not work. but I'll, I'll go back a little bit of when um, we were alternative behavior strategies is prior to rebranding to ABS Kids is that when we started out is my goal, similar to probably what you have always wanted to do through all your organizations. And what I hear from other CEOs all the time was to create an extremely strong quality organization that when you do scale, because it it was almost a necessary part of the business at that point. There wasn't enough providers. So you're growing a provider base and you don't wanna say, hey, okay, I got you to a certain point, now go on your own and uh, there's no job for you. I can't help you with your career progression. But as I was going through that process is that there were tons of resources that I had to put back into the company. Um, That's on technology that was on having any sort of quality program where I could get deeper into the data to understand my own business. That Mm -hmm. was on the financial side. I wasn't a finance guy, I was a clinician. Um, I mean, so when you're looking at each step of the way, you hit these pivot points. And I think the biggest one for me um, was probably about 11 years ago is that I had decided you know, I have so many wonderful RBTs. I want them to become BCBAs. So I started paying for every one of them to get their degree. Um, that's expensive. It yeah, cost a expensive. lot of money. Is that future thinking was, well, you know, they're going to have a chance to be able to contribute back. And these are people that will have learned the way that I would hope I am instilling some quality. Mm-hmm. But you hit it. You hit that critical juncture where it's like, I yeah. can't continue this. Right. Um so, it, and that's kind of my path to needing additional resources. When you talk to other groups that have been out there, prior to accepting funding, find prior to finding that partner, what do you hear from a lot of these groups that maybe started ground up yeah. and what what what's their juncture? What is their critical position saying, oh yeah. man, now I'm at that point, I need to find something? Yeah, I think it's a number of, it's a number of situations, Jeff, that causes a founder to think...
1: Think more seriously about those questions, right? I think for um, for me, there were a couple points. You know, I there were nights. I'm not kidding, Jeff, where I would wake up in the middle of the night, feel and I and I felt like I was sweating blood because payroll was the next day, and we didn't have enough money to cover it. Like I'm not kidding, right? And in the meantime, I'm raising a family. I've got five kids, and uh, and it's like you just get you get to a point where you're trying to you're trying to move mountains for kids with autism and their families you're trying to build the most you know extraordinary organizational culture and and you're trying to produce high quality outcomes and you know what quality costs more it just does so i think that you have situations where you've just you've you've depleted your financial your own financial resources we sold our home uh, and took every penny of equity that we had, and we invested it into our company. Um, we, you know, we 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 would do we would make sacrifices like that to uh, to to invest in our company. And now this was a long time ago. This was going back twelve, you know, twelve ten years ago when we first started, when we left education and started working with kids with autism, but I think it's a in private practice, I should say, but I think it's all a matter of uh, you just get to the point where you either need financial capital and or like, here's another thing, Jeff, that I think is important for us to discuss. It's it's not just the financial capital. At times, I think founders and CEOs they get to a point where they also need a partner. They need they need partners who uh, have experience and you know it's it's not just the financial capital, but it's like what are the values that they want to invest behind? And at times. You find really great partners who are willing to invest behind your values, and and they're really aligned with your mission and your vision. And then not only do you have financial capital, because I think financial capital is is easier to find than um like this 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 idea of having a really incredible partner who's going to support what you're doing uh, organizationally to continue to expand access and uh, to to expand impact. We talked a little bit about this by text this week. I said, you know, McKinsey just produced this report and they they were talking about leadership in the new era. And the very first point that they made was it's it's leaders need to have a mindset that's impact over profit, right? Like we need to focus more on the impact we're making as leaders over the profit that our organizations are producing. But we have to be pragmatic. You need resources to build these things, to sustain and to continue building. So it's always a tension
0: you have to hold. And it's not an easy tension by any means. Yeah, no. And I I couldn't agree more with that. But um, before we go into like, you know, how we actually How how you source that partner, how you actually figure out, is this the right fit for that person that I want to work beside? There's one other piece to this that I I personally found extremely helpful, is that I didn't know all of the components of every one of those jobs that need to be done to the level that I needed in order to really operate a company the way that that my organization is operating right now. That meant that a management team needed to be there. I needed to have a a wonderful CEO, COO, CFO. I needed to have a VP of quality. I needed to have all of these positions where they're waking up every single morning focused on their specific job. When I was a, the founder, I woke up trying to do 10, 12 jobs. Yeah. And it, it honestly felt like at times I was like, you know, I'd, I have to prioritize one of these positions over the other on any given day because yeah. I can't. I'm not 12 people. Um, is that is that something that you hear from others as well, as far as, you know, one of the biggest advantages of being able and whether this is private equity or you you have a nonprofit board and you take on extra grant money or whatever yeah. it may be, wherever the funding's coming from, building yeah. a management team. Is probably the biggest weight off of most pounders' yes. shoulders over time. Yeah, could could not agree more. You know, one of the strategic
1: advantages that organizations can uh, can discover through hard work and dedication is uh, that there's there's this. Um, I guess I'll say it this way: never underestimate the power and influence of an effective management team. Management teams that are uh, that companies that have really strong management teams. Uh, can outperform companies that do not. So, and and by the way, we all know that management teams, high-level leaders, and organizations, uh, you need resources to, to 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 you know attract and and retain top talent. And so, yeah, organizations absolutely have to invest in building their leadership team. You know, Maraca is a relatively you know we're a, we're still a very small company. We just opened our center last year in the spring. But, you know, for a company of our size, we have a chief clinical officer, like we're we're pouring every dollar we've got back into the company to go recruit uh, top talent because we firmly believe that um, that's more important than anything, right? Like we want to have the right team to go get the job done. And uh, that's that's the you know, that's that's how we invest our that's how we invest our money. So, yeah, you need a good team. And every leader who's running an organization on their own right now knows this tension of doing a lot of jobs. Um, and I'm like, you know, I'm 12 years in, although Morocco's a, a new you know, it's a startup. Um, I'm, I'm I've been doing this for a while in this type of context. And so, like, I've just learned that the most I am most effective when I have a strong team around me. So we we invest in our team. We invest in hiring great people and and trying as much as we can to give them really refined roles and responsibilities. Um and it takes time to get there, right? Like it's it's that's not an, that's not that doesn't happen immediately, but yeah, absolutely. You need a team of people and and uh so I'm I'm glad you raised that. I'm glad you raised that that question. I think that many founders
0: are feeling that way. Mm-hmm. and i don't i don't want to drop the issue of the fact that that partnership of whoever it is that you are going to be working with whoever is going to help resource the organization is one of those partnerships that is a make or break for a lot of organizations um, the ability to find somebody who has a shared mission and and value system the ability to be able to work with that people to be able to say hey as a founder I need these people on my board as well because they understand what it is that I'm working through and that it isn't just a board set up by the financers of the organization. Um, I think that a lot of that comes into play when growth strategies are decided or when you're trying to figure out what's most important. Is it being able to get into new markets or is it being able to show a higher level of quality so that you're growth in a specific market is there. Um, when I look at what's happening within our field and talked with a lot of our colleagues, that to me seems like the one of the more important things is the vetting process to understand who it is that you're going to be working with. Have you heard this from others as well?
1: Yeah, you know, it's, it's hard because it's you know, going through a process like that is not always very transparent, right? Um, so you know, to the extent that people are willing to share, uh, they it's 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 hard to know how they, you know, how they process their decisions. I know when we were, you know, back in 2017, 18, we'd built a great company in Austin, Texas, and we started getting, you know, the the floodgates had opened, right? Now we're getting phone calls and emails almost daily. I think it was that I think it was that intense around that time, right? And so we, you know, we were like, we were very committed to what we were doing. You know, we were a top workplace in Austin. We were, you know, accredited with the highest level of accreditations. Like we were just really performing on a high level. Uh, and so, but we're still paying attention to what's happening around us. So we would take, we would take phone calls. We would have meetings and absolutely like you have to um you have to really pay attention to the verbal behavior the interactions you have with potential partners there were times where a potential partner would say just one thing and it was it was a single data point but we just felt it made us feel a certain way right like i remember i remember one time i asked uh, i asked a, a ceo of a platform you know a newly formed platform who was interested in acquiring our company i said hey um why, why is your, you know, why is the PE firm that's backing you? Why are they interested in, in autism? You know, of all things, it's like really hard work. And there's a lot of challenges and it's a, it's a very like, it's a very new industry and, and it's just, a, it's a lot of work, it's very challenging. And he said, well, Rob, that's simple. It's because you're doing all the work, not us. <laughs> and I was like, okay, this is probably not the right partner. I, I'm not interested in your money alone. Like I, I want a partner. I want somebody who's gonna be there with me in the trenches and, and help me build this thing. And so I think that the the process by which you determine a partner is different for everyone and it's really aligned with your values, what you want. Uh, and, and what you value as as an individual, what your organizational values are, what your vision and mission is. So there's a lot behind that. Um, and I have numerous stories just like that, where, you know, this 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 CEO comes and sits in our conference room and tells us why we should sell the company to them or partner with them. And they were just you could tell that the, their aim was primarily money. It's mm-hmm. it's, this, it's this concept of supremacy of money. You know, to what extent at the end of the day do we make decisions based on what's good for the financials over what's good for the people? And and I think you can, you know, people who are discerning could likely tell um, by spending time with, you know, with those that are interested in, in partnering, quote
0: unquote, partnering with you. Yeah. What's, what's your thought, though, on on the fact that, you know, if you do focus on that impact, You focus on the quality. You focus on the ability to provide the highest quality care. Does that not almost always turn into the financial gain if your focus is really on the right things most of the time? Almost always. Yes, I absolutely believe that. I have never I am the most uh, like to a fault at times. I pay
1: much more attention to this now, but. Early in my career, I was not paying attention to the financial performance of any of my organizations. And we always ended up, you know, it takes time, right? Two, three years. Like I are two years in at Maraca and I'm still not paying myself. Um, that happens because we're reinvesting every dollar back into building the team and and resourcing what we're doing. But you, you know, the at the end of the day, two, three years in, however long it takes you, yes, you you end up building a really healthy, sustainable organization because you've prioritized the things that matter most. When you prioritize clinical quality or clinical outcomes and operational excellence, good things happen. So, yeah, I think that um, it's absolutely critical that organizations have the right priority. And and again, we know like those in private equity, they have a fiduciary responsibility to their shareholders, their investors to return, you know, to provide a return on capital, right? I get that. Uh, but responsibility doesn't mean priority, you know, like you should prioritize the right things. And I, I just am absolutely convinced good things will happen. This probably comes back to this idea of uh short versus long-term thinking, right? Like we get very short-term focus. We're very focused on this quarter or even this month. Um, and so when you, when you could like, when you could zoom out a bit and, t- and play the long game, I think that's where you see better results
0: and better outcomes. Yeah. And, and actually I really kind of interesting pivot to talking about some of these areas that are that are thought of as, you know, the um, controversial areas, the areas where others um, have experienced or might have a preconceived idea on why investment into organizations, no matter how that comes, could hinder an organization. And and I want to challenge some of these thoughts. I want to, there's going to be parts where I agree with if people aren't aware of, but I do want to challenge some of the thoughts because I think everybody's unique experience is different. One of them is the the idea that having extra investment and and I'll and I'll think of it through private equity correlates to a decline in patient care. And I could see that happening for group for groups that say, hey, I'm going to put growth over training. Hey, I'm going to um try and bring in Way too many people, and not look at the quality. Not look at, not have some way to be able to evaluate performance and to be able to make sure that I'm there to support that level of clinician that's out there. Um, but at the same time, this is just my perspective. I want to hear yours. But my perspective is, is that I have seen it personally where the patient care has gone up through investment because we are able to leverage. Training protocols. We're able to have additional layers of oversight, whether that's more assistant directors, more uh, center support directors, more uh, quality team, more data analysts that are giving information back. Like there's there's those pieces to everything that's going on that to me is that if you're investing back in, it can be an extreme positive. Are there are there other parts to that piece where you're hearing, you know, there's automatically going to be a downgrade in patient care because you're taking on more money that that either you agree with or that you want to poke holes into?
1: yeah you're right there's i think you have to treat just like just like trying to treat every patient with the same treatment plan um we all know that everyone is a little bit different every organization is different every uh leadership team and 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 board of directors is different so i do think that there's numerous i think that there are cases where this goes really well and an infusion of capital into a company uh, ultimately results in better outcomes because you you have a, a more refined team. You have, you know, you can go out and, and attract uh, talent that can help you continue to improve clinical outcomes. And so, yes, absolutely. There is a narrative that, that very much supports a capital investment into the industry, right? There's just no denying. I mean, and it, we'll take it like We'll take, uh, you know, uh, Morocco as an example. So we're we're not private equity backed. Uh, we were we're funding the, you know, the the launch of the company. We've invested to the penny. We've invested four hundred and five thousand dollars into the company, and we just continue to resource it the way that it needs to be resourced and. And that has led to an increase in clinical quality. There's just no denying that over time, clinical quality is going to improve as as our impact um, as our impact grows greater and we serve more patients because we're we're prioritizing the right things. Y'all and what you're doing, you're prioritizing the right things. You're putting the right players. In place to to do their jobs and do them exceedingly well, but I think that there's also the other side of the story, right? I, we know that these capitalistic ideas can, you know, have led to. We have a history, Jeff, of long a long history of exploitative practices. It's like the the love of money is the root of all evil, and like it can it can impact. The way in which people think and behave in a very, uh, you know, in a very unfortunate way in settings like this. And the ultimate, you know, who suffers? It's the staff and it's the patients. And so, yeah, every, you know, every organization is a little bit different in terms of what they're prioritizing and how they're using their financial resources for the common good or for the good of, you know a handful of individuals. So it's it's really tough. It's like, that's why I think we have to view capital as neutral. It's, mm-hmm.
0: it's what we do with it. That really yeah. makes it. I mean, I, I think that's, I think it's spot on. Um, I, I do see is that, you know, if you get caught up into um, growth as a growth engine, instead of growth as in quality access Serving the community, understanding the needs, making sure you're supporting everybody who's working within the organization. And you think of it as a race to get out there and start putting flagpoles up all over. And I think that I could agree with that because when you're looking around the landscape right now, is that the organizations that maybe didn't take that mentality and took the resources simply to say, okay, I now have additional money. So what I'm going to do is go and just hire and not support. I'm going to put up structures and not have anybody to be able to manage it effectively. Is that you end up seeing that that phenomenon that you're talking about. Um, what What are some of the other things? I mean, one thing that immediately comes to mind is that as you grow as an organization is that systems become more and more important data becomes more and more important. You start managing by data. You have some of the concern might be is that by doing that is that you're taking autonomy away from a clinician. You're taking decision power directly away um, because you have you have more systems that are guiding the process. Um, I see this as a double-edged sword again. Um, I think that if you just live by you have to follow a system and you cannot have clinical autonomy, Mm -hmm. is that you're going to lose your entire clinical workforce. Mm. I don't think that they're going to buy into that. But as a management team, is that if I don't at least have a structure set up where I can start to evaluate those that fall out of the structure to understand and learn from it, and maybe even be able to kind of create boundaries that are open boundaries Mm. for clinicians to kind of guide through that you still have a chance to succeed through the process. And I guess the easiest way to put it in our field is, do I have a program where I say every single child coming through my program gets 40 hours a week, has eight hours of supervision, has blank, blank, blank. And it's like a written script and it goes to every single patient. That to me sounds business oriented and not clinical oriented. Uh, do you see that as part of the pushback that you're seeing as far as the discussion of financing healthcare?
1: Yeah, you know, you and I at some point are going to talk about the, I think we're going to talk about the red flags, green flags kind of uh, concept in, in our field and identifying some of those red flags. And yeah, absolutely. Like having a, a standard model that that does not take into account a learner's individual needs is absolutely something that we should be concerned with as a field, right? Um, it's, it's like, and I know this, this quote could be controversial, but it's like the, the equal treatment of unequals is the greatest inequality. You know, we, we, we cannot treat every kid the same way and, and, and put them through the same exact model. So to, to your point, Jeff, I think that organizations absolutely need really strong systems there's just no denying and systems are, are there. It's like, a, it's like the, the framework of a home, you know, or the foundation of a home. It's there to really uh, allow you to build good things. You, you have to have them and they, you know, good systems that are well-designed uh, really do help with minimizing burnout and fatigue because you just, you can rely on systems and process. And so, and it does, you know, having good systems is not uh it's an investment we're considering a software right now that's in addition to all the other things we're using and i was calculating the costs actually just this morning and i thought thousands of dollars a year to use this new system but I think it's going to, it's going to help the team. It's going to help them know um, what the process and the procedure is in certain situations and, you know, how to do all the things that a clinician needs to do day in and day out. You know, you and I both know this because we're both clinicians as well as, you know, entrepreneurs, but there's like hundreds or thousands of like things that happen all day, all week. It's like the number of things always happening. Uh, it's It's like, it's hard to get your mind around. So having good systems is absolutely really important. Um, you mentioned autonomy. We've had a lot of conversations recently in our um, in our, on our team, just regarding uh, like how much clinical judgment we give to staff and and how much you know again moment by moment decision ma- making they're they're able to they're able to have. And so um, yeah, these are all like really important conversations. Um, but you know you're asking about concern with. a a model that is like one size fits all. And yes, I think that's absolutely a concern. It's it's likely driven by um, priorities that are more related to business practices that lead to greater financial profit or financial gain. And I think that when you start to make decisions like that, again, when you're designing practices that are almost exclusively aimed at uh, at improving the dollar, you know, making a dollar, then I, I think you've lost the whole heart of why we do what we do. You and I aren't behavior analysts, Jeff, because we wanted to make money. Well, I started my career in education. I, I made $12 an hour as an instructional, you know, I, I was an, an ABA, a BT in the classroom. And then I was a teacher and I made $40,000 a year. and <laughs> like I just did not do this work to make money. And so I think, You know, the temptation, though, is is there certainly for people who are in finance who are like, I'm I'm in an industry where my job is to make money. And so they're very good at that at times. Um, Not always, but they're good at
0: that at times. And so you have to just be really mindful. Yeah. And I mean, even the way that you were describing kind of the thought process of investing into the new technologies, investing into other things, you're doing that with the clinician in mind. You're doing that with the patient care in mind. But there is a payoff for that. So if I am able to provide additional resources to my clinicians, there's going to be an immediate and then there's going to be a long-term effect. I'm going to have lower attrition because I supported my clinicians on having all the resources they need to do their job well. I'm going to be able to create better loyalty to the patient and to the consumer is that they are looking at this as far as hold on. All of these things are being provided to me now. There's additional supports being put in place. This is a good thing. This is going to, so when you're when we're talking about growing a business responsibly, and, and this is going to pivot to kind of the next line of thinking, but as you're doing that, one of the biggest things is, is that if you're doing the right thing by your employee base and by the patient, is that you should be doing the right thing by the investor because you're ultimately building a stronger business with them. Um, And that's what I want to kind of put the question out there is that when, when, when you think about investor, and you've already, I think, articulated this, but I'd love to get a little bit deeper into this conversation, is that what is the real difference between a nonprofit board versus having a private equity board if it's being done the way that that we're describing right now where it's a true partnership and that's what's occurring um versus and 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 I'll throw a venture capitalist board in there as well just so that we can kind of put that on the table that that line of thinking VC never really happened in our field everybody went private equity before venture capitalists got involved but um what what to your kind of experience What is the big difference? And and I'm going to just say for me personally, is that I look at all of these investors, I look at all these boards, if they're telling you what to do as a management team, that's probably not the right partnership. If they're asking you relevant questions and you're having to come back and be able to utilize your mission, your values, your understanding of your business. To be able to justify what's going, and you're helping to assure that no, we're going the right way. You all are safe in our hands. Yeah. Is that that seems to me no matter what board, nonprofit versus private equity, this board should be operating almost similarly. But I mean, what's your view on that? Well, if you
1: can trust, if you can trust the management team, um, I th- and I do think about it from both perspectives, right? I, I have like I'm I'm a director on the board, and I think like a, a shareholder. I put my shareholder hat on at times, and then I think like you know the CEO. Like I'm the operator, I'm running the company, and I have to I have to balance those those two different roles. So I do play two roles in the organization. I play my shareholder role with my wife. Katie, who's also a behavior analyst, much better at everything than I am. So I'm thankful that she decided to take a chance on me a long time ago. Uh, And here we are, three businesses in and five kids. Um, Yeah, I think about everything as a shareholder and as the CEO. And I think that if the board, in this case, if you have a different, you know, an external board of directors, if the board trusts the management team and empowers the management team and coaches the management team, Then yeah, those boards should essentially function similarly, right? And I'm not I'm not an expert in nonprofit boards. I've been on I've been on um, boards in companies like ours, right? And so I, I understand that dynamic a little bit better. But you know, I think if if a board is like one one thing I've thought about in the last three to five years is You know, to what extent is the board interested in, like, what do they want beyond a financial return? I think if a board of directors can articulate what they want beyond a financial return, that's that's powerful, because all of a sudden now you're having conversations around mission, you're having conversations around vision and values. And I would suspect that not enough of those conversations are happening at the board level. I would just make that assumption in our field. Um, I have an I have an intern with me this week. He's a high school junior. I've told you about him, and um, I think it was on Monday we did. I asked him the question, like, "Hey, what's the like What's the purpose of What's the purpose of business? Like, why do businesses exist?" And, you know, we went through this exercise of you have to be pragmatic because businesses need financial resources, but a a business, you know, private enterprises have this ability to really like renew culture we have the ability right now jeff as behavior analysts running companies we could we could renew the 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 culture that we find ourselves in we can rewrite this story a bit and and use our financial capital for good and so i think that there's a lot of questions that that uh you know we can we can talk through and a lot of uh you know conversation points but the boards yeah i think the boards could function very similarly i think it's really important to have a board of directors that's really aligned with what the organization is doing. Again, I want to know, what do you want beyond a financial return? If you can articulate that to me, and for those who are who are in the process of interviewing potential partners, it's like, ask them that question. What do you want beyond a financial return? And, you know, really push, really interrogate everything they're saying, uh, because you want to know the answer to that. And People are very good, by the way, at, at telling you what you want to hear. So, you know, you have to You have to look at track record you have to look at a number of things but
0: yeah man these are all really important considerations in this conversation and and i think that one thing and i i think it's it's kind of being discussed throughout all this conversation is that i think it comes back a lot of times to the management team and to the the founder or the ceo or the uh, leaders of the organization um to be able to guide where the board needs to go on these conversations so if they're avoiding these conversations because of i mean uh, insecurity uh, inexperience the lack of understanding that you know sometimes i'm gonna have financial downfall while i'm building something up and not feeling like i always have to be at the top of the the ladder every single step of the way and instead being transparent and sticking to a vision and thinking through a five, ten year plan um, and then being able to modify that every five, ten years and continuously look at how to make it grow. Um, I think that part of the challenge that we're running into is the fact that maybe we need to develop some of those skills as well as as uh, as leaders in the field, as executives in the field, to be able to to manage a board-type situation, to manage understanding how financing comes in. I didn't have that right when I started out. I was a clinician. It took yeah. me a long time to be able to kind of sit down and realize, okay, so this is this is the right question. This is the way to be able to make sure that we are staying focused and, and on a path going forward. And it, and it took having others around me at the table who had done that before to be able to assure, yes, we can hold our ground on this. Yes, we are the ones that understand this business better than most. The, every question being posed to us is a great question because there is a fiduciary responsibility of no matter what board it is. So if you're a nonprofit and you're bleeding $3 million a year, that's not yeah. good. Same thing for a for profit organization is that you have to know why you're putting the investment into different projects. Ask those questions. Answer those questions. Make sure it sticks to your values. But um, I think that that's something that I've learned is that there's an education curve that we always have to be kind of investing in ourselves because there's growth that I need in this. I'm sure that you could probably say the same is that there's growth that you need. But I look around is that there's nobody in our field right now that understands it all to that point to be able to, to do it perfectly. And that's part of the clinician business man, business woman model is that's that's just, it's a learning curve.
1: Yeah, it really is a learning curve. You know, I've, I've learned a lot over the last 12 years. I mean, my goodness. And, I'm, and this is, you know, Starting a starting a company, um, transitioning from the security of working as a you know in, in public schools and and uh, going into going into private practice, starting things, building things that that was so it, it was really difficult. Uh, the number of times that I wanted to give up, I mean I, I I couldn't count them. It's just like there's so many opportunities that that were inflection points for me where it's like we could really just shut this thing down and go back to public school. Um, (laughs) the temptation was there and it was strong, but we just, you know, we kept our hands to the plow, we kept building and I'm glad we did, uh, because I've learned so much. So, you know, you're asking, you, you asked the question or, you know, you, you presented kind of this, this, this argument for the need for us to educate ourselves and to really invest in, in developing our skill set. And that, you know, absolutely like put myself on a path a long time ago where I realized I'm not doing a good job at this. Uh, You know, I I think in the first company I started, we were really good at building a clinical model that was, you know, prioritized clinical outcomes. And but then we realized like we're not running this company very well. Like we're and we needed to invest in systems and process. We hired a consultant, paid them a lot of money, and we built. That was the very first time I interacted with this idea of what an SOP was. And you know, so it's ten years ago maybe. I don't remember. It was it was a while ago. And it was such a life. It was such a life giving experience because we started investing in systems and process and and in the development of those types of things. And I learned so much at that point. And yes, part of that is learning to be a CEO. Like what is a CEO's responsibility? We're actually educating our team on these ideas right now. We're, we're putting content like this and learning management systems. We're ha- it's the focus of staff meetings. We're trying to get our team to. Um, you know we're we're bringing them alongside us and helping them to understand like what is the responsibility of a ceo what do they do and part of what they do is managing a board and 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 being kind of like the you know be, being the person who stewards the culture and and make sure that they're like the we we talk about it like they're the oil or the grease to the machine you know they're not they're they're not always, you know, producing a lot of deliverables, but they're really paying attention to whole how the whole thing is working. I think Tony Shea from Zappos, he said that, you know, the CEO is the the architect of the greenhouse and he's really, you know, he or she is really there to make sure that all the plants are flourishing and thriving. And 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 then they have to relate to their capital partners and they have to learn to manage that expectation. And it's so much pressure and so much work that I think, you uh, you know, we should absolutely be having these conversations and we should be investing in one another as CEOs um, and, and other people who are in these positions where they have to like Report to a board and they have to try to they have to try to tell a story to the board as to why they're doing what they're doing and why they need the resources for this and and why maybe this margin is unrealistic. And like there's just a lot of conversations that have to happen. And yes, you need the you need the soft skills and you need the the executive skills to be able to manage all of that well. And it does not happen overnight. It's taken me a long time to be. Where I'm at today, and I still have a
0: lot of like I still have so much to learn, Jeff. Yeah, I'm in I'm in the same boat, but at, at the at the same time, what I would say is that as clinicians, we've always been really good at being able to talk through clinical issues, talk through failures on clinical programs. Yeah. Um one of the one of the biggest um yeah. kind of areas where I felt so much support was being able to kind of meet with other CEOs within our industry, other presidents within our industry to talk through, hey, you know, these pains are real. Yeah. I had a failure today. This is the failure I had. Let's talk through How have you all been successful with this historically? What do I need to learn from this? What did I, where was, where was it that maybe I took the wrong direction? Because I think that we're all scared to fail on the business side yet we're open to a clinical misstep because we feel like clinically we can learn again. I don't want to show any holes in my business plan. I think that we have to be transparent on both sides and build a community around us where we have peers that we can have these open conversations with and learn because otherwise these conversations where you're saying that funding alone is the bane to an ABA organization. I, I, I think I, disagree with that. I think funding can be a bane. It could also be a huge boom if you have the right management team to be able to utilize it correctly and you're working correctly to be able to guide a board on that process and get buy-in to show them that your vision's working. Um, But it takes being able to have a community of CEOs to learn from each other because none of us initially who are clinician first came in with that skill set. So we need to rely on one another
1: yeah we had to learn it i i tried to invest as early on as i could in in surrounding myself with people that were coaching me to help me think differently about everything that i was doing and uh yeah you need that community of 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 those that have gone before you who have been in situations like this before and i think that's where that's where you know having a having a capital partner could be a real win um But at times it's not. So, again, it's like I think it is faulty thinking to make a generalization that every, you know, every organization that's PE backed is is uh, not doing things well or sacrificing quality. Um, I think that there's real concern there that you should pay attention to. But I would also be mindful, again, like every organization is different, how they invest their, how they invest their their effort and their energy and their financial resources, I think is, is important to, um, to look at the more, you know, the more transparency you have into those types of things, I think is important, but yeah, you have to learn these things and it doesn't, it's, it's really, it's a learning curve that's stressful and you make mistakes and, you know, we're we have a staff meeting today and we're going to talk about the idea of, um, failing forward, right? It's like failure is a staircase and you use it to continue building and moving, moving ahead. And so, yeah, there's, there's, a uh, this is an important conversation and there's a lot of very, very passionate views on it. Um, I've just I've tried to I've tried to remain as neutral as I can in just assessing individual, you know, the individual situation that I find myself in. It's it's because everyone is operating, every
0: organization's is operate, operating differently and you have to you have to acknowledge that. No, for sure, and and I think that our next conversation down the line on these red flags and green flags, where we have a, another guest who will be joining us as well, it's uh, I think that that's a a great next step to this conversation because quite frankly, if you are focusing around hitting all those green flags, is that then resources become a positive almost every step of the way additional funding becomes a positive because you're focused on how do you create that culture of quality how do you create the the culture of impacting the community you're serving and listening and being responsive and empowering people and that's, that's what we're in it for. So, but Robbie, I appreciate you coming on today. This is a, this is a topic I think that's been long, long time in the waiting just to sit down and discuss. And I I hope that it actually brings about more conversation because I think there's a lot for us still to learn on this. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. It's
1: always, you know, it's always enjoyable to spend time with you, Jeff. I appreciate your, you know, your mentorship and guidance. Um, to me, it's like, it's really invaluable, you know, speaking of having people in your corner, Uh, you're one of those people and I I appreciate just all of the things that I've been able to learn from you. And anytime I get to talk to you, I, I always, I always say yes.
0: Ah, Well, likewise the same. (laughs) Thanks a lot. Yeah. Thank you for listening to autism weekly. We hope you tune back in next week to learn more about autism in the real world. Autism weekly is now found on all the major listening apps, including Apple podcasts, Google podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, and more. Subscribe to be notified when we post a new podcast. Autism Weekly is produced by ABS Kids. ABS Kids is proud to provide diagnostic assessments and ABA therapy to children with developmental delays like autism spectrum disorder. You can learn more about ABS Kids and the Autism Weekly podcast by visiting abskids.com. Thanks for tuning in, see you again next week.